This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Right at the top, that's where you rank. Money loves better than money in the bank. Yeah, and how about a tale of two banks and their earnings today? We've got shares of J.P. Morgan Chase rallying uh, on this Friday. Wells Fargo, not so much, Jason. I think they're down as much at their lows, about 3.5% on the uh, a decline. Uh, Michelle Davis is finance reporter at uh, Bloomberg News. She's having a pretty busy day. She's going to have a pretty busy couple of weeks here. Along with Arnold Kakuda, he's senior credit analyst, global banking sector. He's going to be pretty busy as well at uh, our in-house group of analysts that are known as Bloomberg Intelligence. And they're both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Michelle, let's start with you, though. It was a tale of two banks, but they are different types of banks. JP Morgan, though, uh, their quarter, how would you assess it? I would say pretty stellar. Uh, they surprised uh, in terms of you know having record income, profit. Even their trading, while it was down 17%, it wasn't as steep of a drop as what analysts were projecting and even as what Daniel Pinto, Pinto the co-president, had you know telegraphed in February. So, yeah, pretty good. And give us a give us a sense of what Jamie Dimon was talking about because we always listen very closely to what he says to reporters what he says to to analysts right so the view from Jamie and from Marianne you know the CFO who talks a lot on these calls as well was that while maybe the first quarter you know in January when when we lost last heard from them things looked a little rocky in terms of the global economy now it it seems like you know client sentiment is back up and actually it they seemed even more optimistic than than they had been previously they they didn't change any of their outlooks or guidance but um it was definitely you know a, a happier tone that's pretty cool arnold come on in on the credit side of the picture let's talk about jp morgan and then let's also talk about wells fargo what you're seeing well, um, yeah, for both those banks, you know, asset quality seems to be pretty good and steady and stuff. But obviously, you know, the focus today, Wells Fargo, um, actually, the return on equity profitability looked, you know, pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are you know, people arguing whether there's some one-time items or not. But two big things came to mind today. It's the asset cap exit kind of, you know, taking away the time frame in terms of when they might exit. The first thing, and then the commentary on net interest income. Uh, you know, just two months ago, they're like, "Ah, oh, probably be around flat this year." But then now we got the bombshell that probably going to be down two to five percent. A contrast to J.P. Morgan, which uh, you know kept its guidance, and, and of course, you know these two, three, uh, two to three months, a very big event happened on March twentieth when you know the Fed uh, took out their their estimates of two rate hikes uh, to none, right? So that, that's a big event, and, and keeping guidance, I think today, uh, that, that was the big thing. I think the difference that you see in, in the uh, stock price movements. And so how much should we be worried about Wells at this moment? Just sort of the the running of the business. There's obviously a lot of existential mm-hmm. angst around who's going to to run it, but the underlying business, what are the what are the sort of hopes and dreams there in terms of turning it around? Well, I mean it's it's they're constrained, right? So it's 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 uh and and then you know, you don't have the, the new captain in the seat yet. So it's it's almost kinda hard to you know, people are kinda getting on Wells Fargo today and saying, Hey, what are you doing? You know, what do you know? And, and the thing is, maybe you know the, the new C, the, the interim CEO is trying to justify, hey, we've done a lot of stuff. 
Uh, we're talking to the regulators, and but but it just seems like every quarter, you know, it's it's still the picture is muddled, right? But so I think over the next two years, um, you know, getting a new CEO in place, getting him um, a new strategy, you know, expense cuts that you know they promised before, you probably might not have that because you need to invest a little bit more in in you know in risk management infrastructure that needs to be put in place. But in terms of you know um, you know Wells Fargo, um, most exposed to the U.S. out of all the big U.S. Right. peers, and then. Uh, you know that that's actually a great thing, right? You know everybody's talking about the economy looks pretty solid, so right. the bones are, look pretty good. But but obviously there there's some uh, you know muddling in terms of uh, what's going on at the top and, and some things around the fringes. So. Michelle, let's also look forward to next week, right? Because we're going to get from Goldman Sachs, we're going to hear from the right. rest of the other banks. I mean, you're really J.P. Morgan, right? But yeah, I'll be but, covering all the banks. So I mean, this t- the takeaway from from J.P. Morgan and Wells mainly JP Morgan just because Wells has a lot of these one-off, you know, issues is that things probably, you know, this bodes well for the other banks that are going to report next week. Goldman so Sachs that was a guarantee though, right? It's not a guarantee. And nobody knows their trading books. Right. So, so, so that forth. is what I was going to say is that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, you know, could be surprises just because, you know, we we don't know what their trading looked like. One bright spot for JP Morgan when it comes to their corporate investment bank is that advisory revenue was actually the for the first quarter, it was like their best first quarter on record, just according to our data going back to mm-hmm. 2004. So, wow. you know, Goldman is, has historically been very strong in that area. So it'll be interesting to see if J.P. Morgan, you know, stole share from them or if, you know, a high tide raises all boats. Right. Arnold, what are you looking mostly for next week as, as we continue on this earnings parade? Well, I mean, I, I think um, uh, one interesting thing is, um, you know, with, with the um, – the cut in, in in the dots right in the, by the Fed, uh, the bank stocks and you know Treasury yields had kind of dipped down, and mm-hmm. then that kind of re- responded. The interesting thing is uh, corporate bond spreads. Like maybe we were complacent, or it, it turns out that we were right in terms of it's just tightened since the beginning of this year. So I'll see if that continues. I'll see if the commentary about you know uh, Citigroup, I think, is is, is mm-hmm. a bank that uh, had embedded a one rate hike into its forecast this year. So we'll, we'll, you know, in terms of their, their plan is to, oh, we'll keep expenses flat while growing revenue, right? right. So if, if maybe some of that revenue pop might not be there, are they going to have to dig a little bit deeper in terms of, you know, cutting expenses? But, and one more thing, on, on, on revenue, you know, it's, it's cherry blossom season right now. JP Morgan looking great right now. But are we at peak bloom, Right, so that—that's what I kind of worry oh, about. Is look at you know, that. Um, you You've know, been working I, I, on that, right? I, I, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Did you uh, test that out on a few people? You're like, I'm thinking about saying this on the radio. What do you guys think? So, and so, I, you know, I, I think that's what we're looking at is peak bloom potentially, and then how fast will these petals fall? That's what I'm worried about. Wow. wow, he even closed out the metaphor there. That is amazing. We can't do any better than that. Uh, Arnold wow. Kakuda, he is Senior Credit Analyst at Global Banking Sector for BI. Michelle Davis, Finance Reporter for Bloomberg as well. Thank you both so much. We know it is a very busy time. So as you've been listening to us say, we talked about unicorns all coming to home to public really this year, Lyft, Uber, Pinterest, so on. You might recall just a few weeks ago, we brought to your attention, actually Jake Bright, who's TechCrunch contributor. He was one of our guests. He brought this to your attention. And it was about Africa's first unicorn, which went public on the New York Stock Exchange today, soaring up 54% in its first day of trading. Lucky for us, we've got the co-founder and CEO of Jumia, 
Joining us from the New York Stock Exchange, Sacha Ponyanik. Uh, Sacha, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Congratulations. Great first day of trading. Tell us about your company because it certainly isn't a household name here in America. Of course, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure getting to speak about Jumia, which is an e-commerce platform. And, uh, you know, in America, there's Amazon. In Alibaba, in China, there's Alibaba. In Latin America, there's Mercado Libre. And in Africa, there's Jumia. We, we offer the, the similar services, as, as, you guys, as you guys know them very well. And consumers use Jumia to access uh, services and goods. They can buy a lot of products, but also book hotels, order food online, and all sorts of ser- uh, services. And, and we operate as a marketplace. We help sellers distribute their products and services through Jumia. And so help us understand kind of the different aspects of the business that that you just described. Where does the preponderance of revenue come at this point? Is it both geographically uh, and by product? Very good. We operate in 14 countries of Africa. There are 54 countries in this continent. There are lots of countries, and we operate in 14 of those, which cover about 75% of the of the Africa Internet users. And uh, in Africa, there are 400 million Internet users. Consumers are very connected. And our largest market is Nigeria, which is about 25 uh, to 30% of the business. And we have 35% in North Africa, 15 in West Africa, 15 in East Africa, and 10 in South Africa. And uh, we, we, the, the, the consumers, when they transact on Jumia, generate GMV, gross merchandise volume, which we then turn into uh, revenues through commissions and value-added services and marketing services that we provide to the sellers. So we, we operate as a marketplace, a B2B2C business, if you will, and the majority of our revenue comes from the, the, the commissions and the services or marketing services that we provide to the sellers for the, for the transactions they do on Jumia. So did you say the majority is B2B, business-to-business? No, it's, uh, we provide a platform for the sellers, so Got it. businesses, and, right. and then they provide their service to the, to the seed, the consumer. So B2B, we are the, you know, the, the sellers are the businesses, the consumers are the, 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 the right. users. Right. Hey, yeah. I just want to throw out some numbers for our listeners because you've got, from what I understand, um, seven years of growth for the company. You've got more than 4 million customers, as you mentioned, in 14 African countries. Um, your revenues jumped by almost 40% last year to about $147.3 million. You're not profitable at this point. You've got about 80,000 active sellers on the platform. What's the profit picture look like for you? When do you, re- when do you hit profitability? So, of course, we can't give a very precise uh, outlook, uh, but we are we have a very uh, fast growing business and and the users are, are discovering e-commerce and if you look at the number of users uh, the internet users in particular in our market there are 400 million internet users and last year 4 million uh, transacted on Jumia that's 1% right so we have a lot of room ahead of us right. to grow the user base and the adoption as we do that we have a very healthy uh, business model which 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 has uh, clear revenues and uh, which has a very healthy cost structure. So we believe that with growth uh, together with cost optimization and monetization, uh, right. the, the, road, the profitability will be achieved through those through those levers. But I guess I wonder, because you talk about you've been around for several years, you've had seven years of growth. Will it take another seven years to be profitable or much less time? The, fu- 
the future will have to to tell about that. Uh, we are really focused on on the execution of the business, making mm. sure that it is very healthy. That every uh, that every year, as we have seen in the past, we we both work on growing the user base and growing the TMV, mm. but also increasing the monetization and the cost efficiency. So for us, it's all about continuing to do that. All right, only about 30 seconds left, 30, 40 40 seconds left, Sasha. But how much do you worry about those names you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, Amazon, Alibaba, uh, coming in and uh, eating into some of your business? Well, Africa is is a very unique continent uh, from many aspects, right? And the execution of e-commerce is uh, very unique also in Africa. It's about how you do business with the sellers, how do you do business with the consumers, create the, the adoption, also how do you do the logistics and the payment. And it's a lot of adaptations to the very unique specificities of Africa. And we've been, uh, you know, in Africa, only in Africa, building this company for the African consumers and sellers right. and executing that business uh, just for them. So we think that we have a lot of uh, uh, passion to do that in Africa, and that's very unique. That's what we, you know, that's what we focus right. about, I would say. Sacha, we, lo- we look forward to talking to you uh, over the next Anytime. year or so and getting an update on the business. Much appreciating. Congratulations on the first day of trading. Sacha Ponyanek, he is the co-founder, CEO of Jumia. Right now, that stock is up 56% in its first day of trading, $22.57 a share. It's over a billion dollars in market cap as we speak, Jason. Can I just say, Paul Brennan's song choices so far have been so on point. The fact that he played the the new Weezer version of Africa versus the throwback. Can we get him a Spotify playlist? Uh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. we got to do it every day. Uh, in any case, you're the one that I want. That's... What happened today in the world of energy? Chevron, a huge deal, $33 billion for Anadarko. We've got the team here to break it down. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You guys have been following the energy space so closely. And Tina Davis, that's all she does. She just eats, sleeps, and breathes uh, energy. She's managing editor of Energy and Commodities for Bloomberg, both here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Joel, like, set up how you guys are thinking about energy, and then we'll turn to Tina to give us the context for this deal. You heard about this stuff called shale oil? Because that's, I think, really what this breaks down to. And America is now the number one uh, oil producer in the world, right? And I think a deal like this really encapsulates sort of that zeitgeist, right? Chevron obviously sees uh, a future here. Uh, mm-hmm. So much so that they're willing to spend $33 billion, which is a lot more than I have. Well, let's talk about the terms of the deal. Tina, come on in on this. Because i got to say, this morning reading it, I was like, this is my WOA moment. Like, wow. This yeah. is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I used to think of it as sort of a rite of spring that once a year, every year, you would get the rumor <laughs> that Anadarko is for sale. Uh, and you would have to sort of scramble to see who was buying it this time. And then it would go away. And then it would go away. But this time it actually came true. Um, and pr- in previous years, we've sort of you know, heard talk about Shell buying or about Exxon buying. And what's interesting about this deal is you have a sort of one of the smaller companies, if I can call Chevron small, um, that's using Anadarko to essentially launch itself into the top three with this purchase. So it becomes one of the super majors or ultra majors, however you want to define them. So take that ExxonMobil, right? Yeah, I mean, they're actually going to be, if you look at their um, cash flow for last year, they actually would have produced more cash than Exxon did. They'll still be third in terms of production, but this makes them a big boy. And to me, it's, it's not only about the shale play, 
right? Because the Permian is also a big part of this, but it's also about LNG. And there's a little bit of a, a thing that I'm interested in and it's sort of like, is, is gas the new oil as part of this, right? This byproduct that everybody f- forgot about, and yet it seems like there's actually a major business, both near term and, and sort of longer term and sort of being able to supply LNG. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the fact that the U.S. is the largest oil producer, but the sort of thing that people aren't thinking about outside of the industry is all of the liquefied natural gas that the U.S. is starting to export right. and really becoming a player in that business. And that's because, look, if you're going to transition off of fossil fuels, you're going to have to transition with the fossil fuel, right? It's sort of like the morphine yep. for the industry, for anyone that's addicted already. And so uh, what Anadarko has done is they started up working on a project in Mozambique that would be a huge LNG facility. And actually, interestingly enough, they're sort of racing Exxon to see who's going to be first to get this project online. And so what uh, what Chevron's able to do there is get that business basically before it's off the ground. And they've had, I mean, what's interesting is they've had a lot of problems building LNG in Australia. They had a lot of problems with cost overruns. So they're getting in early and potentially, the CEO says, using some of the, the lessons they learned in Australia to help make sure that that project goes well. What do you, what do you think the ratio is, if you're, if you're Chevron looking at this, if it's, uh, is it like 50% shale and 50% LNG, or is it like 70% shale, 30% LNG? What do you think the, the ratio is of why you're doing this? Well, I mean, I think you have to be thinking about the long term, right? All, all these projects are sort of 10, 20, 30-year projects, and then they're going to exist for hopefully another 30 years after that or until we run out of uh, oil and gas. Um, you know, I don't know that there's a magic formula in terms of oil to gas waiting. Uh, I do know that this makes Chevron a lot gassier than they were yesterday. <laughs> that it just is sounds gas. wrong. Yeah, it's just post-lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened there? Wow. Yeah, it really just, it just, really just took a turn. Took hey, a turn. I got to ask you, because Atadarko is trading uh, right now. It's up about 32%. And it went straight 61. up. Right. 61 and change. But I'm just curious because what the, the buyout price was 65 each. Do we think because with the stock trading below it that there's nobody else that could come in and do uh, squeeze out Chevron? Or what was it? A 39% premium. So it's it, done. It's a healthy premium. But if you look at it, this is still about $12 below their 52-week high, right? So since the year began, Anadarko has not been climbing with oil prices. They were up before today about 6% for the year. Mm-hmm. Oil prices are up 38% for the year. So they've been lagging. Um, and I think, again, if, if, you're, if you're looking at this as you know, a deal about size, um, you know, there are other people who could come in and wreck this deal, but the market sentiment so far seems to be that nobody else is going to trump it. We had reporting earlier that Occidental had offered $70 a share. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the share price today, it doesn't look like the market really believes that Occidental price is going to come to pass. And so how do you make sense of this in the magazine? This is such a dynamic uh, sort of piece of the global economy at this point. It's geopolitical. It's geoeconomic in addition to all the sort of financial and business considerations. So you have to look at it first and foremost. This is news story right now. Yeah. Right. So covered is that. Check that box. Um, but I do think there, you know, we have to kind of like think about it. If you zoom out, I always think about that. Like, and I think uh, I have an interest in a bigger story about sort of, sort of gas as a new oil, right? Because I think that puts it into a geopolitical framework that becomes a really powerful one. And if you think about this on a on a meta level, right, of the Middle East no longer having quite the importance that it has had for the past decades, right? This is a version of that played out with companies now because they see a resource that defines the future. 
Right, geopolitically, I think the implications are tremendous in terms of um, the U.S. and their energy uh, production. I'm curious what it means now for BP and Total, because they're now in what fourth and fifth place in terms of producer, you know, oil producers. Yeah. Do they have I mean, to do anything or they're fine? This sort of shakes up the ranks of the super majors, as I was talking about. Um, and I think there will be discussions about, is there more um, M&A to happen? We, we saw a bunch of companies that uh, surged today on this news. Some of the smaller companies like Concho and Noble uh, had like 10% gains because mm-hmm. people think, okay, now we're in the market. Now everyone has to jostle to make sure they're not falling further behind. So there could be a bit of a feeding frenzy here. Um, you know, BP has run its shale operations in the U.S. like it's a separate business for a long time, and they are doing that for, for, you know, their stated reason is for flexibility. Everyone it always says it's because they're going to eventually sell it, but they're sort of they sort of ring fence that company more or less to make sure that it's not, you know, suffering too much from the bureaucracy of being within a large oil company. And now it'll be interesting to see. Okay, well, now do they expand? Um, you know, does Total come into shale? Total has right. heretofore sworn off anything in the U.S. in terms of shale production. They say they don't need it. They have plenty around the world. Uh, you know, if you're heavily invested in Libya, as Total is, you might start looking for something a, a little bit safer than that. Great, great stuff. Tina Davis, working hard today, as she always does, managing editor of Energy and Commodities for Bloomberg, and Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Great to get some context from both of you in this very big deal. Big, it's big huge. deal. Noble Energy. Billion. Right. Tina mentioning uh, that stock at its highs was up about 10% today. Right now, it's still up about 8% at 2710 a share. So we're definitely seeing possible acquisition targets. Moving on that news, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. When you're drinking, when you're drinking. All right, so I'm going to tell you about a couple products that you may or may not uh, have heard of. Saturday session, it's a low ABV alcohol by volume canned wine. Nice. Protes, not totes, protes, a (laughs) protein-packed superfood snack. And this is my favorite, kombucha, the the market's first hard kombucha. They all sprung from the mines down at AB InBev, and specifically ZX Ventures. It is the innovation arm of the big beverage maker. Tom Allison, he's the head of investment strategy and M&A at ZX Ventures. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tom, thanks so much for stopping by. Yeah, great to be here. Especially because on a Friday afternoon, I think this is true, down at your place, you're serving drinks. You got you got beers on tap, and all the good stuff. Right? Don't worry, we actually brought some brought ah. some along for you guys to, to try. Wow. Forget the kombucha. Favorite guest. Uh, so what what are you looking at? Well, actually, let's take a step back. How does this work? I mean, what's your mandate with inside AB InBev to sort of go out and also to to develop these new products? Yeah. So so like you said, we're the we're the global growth and innovation arm of of AB InBev. Our mandate is really to get ahead of the consumer trends, right? To think about what's next, what's in the future, not what's right now necessarily, but what will be at scale in five to 10 years. You know, what are the trends that, that are starting now and starting to emerge that are going to be maturing over time, the macro trends um, that are going to change the way consumers consume, how they interact with products? Um, what are some of those trends? There's so many, you know, I mean, I think, yeah. I think the one we focus on most is health and wellness in the consumer space. It's real, that right? One, it's, it's obvious, right? I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's becoming um, more meaningful every day. You know, 80% of consumers are considering what's on the label, you know, I mean, when they make a choice about, about what to eat or drink. Um, they're less concerned with calories than carbs today. 
there's a, a new level of quantification and, 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 you know, I think with technology, you know a lot more about what you're consuming and you know a lot more about what's happening inside your body mm-hmm. after you consume products. Um, and it's, it's increasingly uh, visible every day. So help us understand the the breakdown and and the trend line as it relates to liquor versus beer and all mm-hmm. the iterations of of both because I feel like we're getting mixed signals from the from the market and some of the big beverage makers in terms of where consumer taste is going. What do you guys see? Yeah, I mean I think consumers are looking for um they're they're looking for convenience, they're looking for health and wellness. They're looking for, in a lot, of, a lot of cases, lower ABV alternatives. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're looking at companies, like you mentioned, Kombucha, which is coming in with a, with a new proposition, you know, I mean, in the alcohol space. In the, in the non-alc space, you know, we're looking at all of the emerging categories, whether it's uh, non-alc Kombucha, um, you know, healthy energy. So all of these legacy, you know, you have the legacy, um, you know, CSDs, the carbonated soft drinks, which are cratering. Um, and all of these new categories are splintering out uh, in a big way. So the future is in niches, niches of the new scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're really investing aggressively you know, behind these new emerging subcategories. It's kind of like what happened to beer, right, in terms of the microbreweries, yeah. just really, really taking over. What does this mean for the Coca-Colas of this world, the Pepsi-Colas of this world, or Pepsi-Cos of this world? And Pepsi, of course, has got their snack brands mm-hmm. as well. But what does it mean from these, for these big beverage giants? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're seeing the same things we are, right? And they're investing, I'd say, in, in the same ways you know what i mean so they all have their own venture units and i think they are uh attacking trends in the same way so i i, I mean i think but i mean is the them, day the era of soda is over i think the future of of soda will be sparkling water kombucha these new emerging categories you know it was interesting my son was drinking a you know a sparkling water the other day and i thought wow you know he he might never drink uh, a carbonated soft drink. Yeah. It's right. kind of like he may never have a driver's license, right? Because of he might he might be in a, a, a drone, right? So he, he may he may never drink a, a beverage with 120 calories, right? <laughs> and so take us inside and, and tell us about something that you thought, oh man, this could work, and then it just did not, or not necessarily it got to market, but you played around with it, you developed it, and you thought actually this isn't going to do what we thought it was going to do. Wow, I mean, there's so many of those those cases. You know, I think we we we, uh, we have failures every day, uh, which is part of the fun. But right, but, but uh, you're encouraged to, I would imagine. Yeah, right, absolutely, absolutely. You have to fail to succeed, and and you have to if you're dreaming big, you're dreaming about things that are going to fail. Um, uh, wow, which one should should we focus on? Um, you know, one thing that we we had developed was a more was a convenient way to make beer in your home yeah um it, you know it was called the whim kit we we developed some really interesting technology there um you know but in the end you know people uh were less focused on you know the creation uh portion of it and they just wanted to be consumers they i just wanted, want to drink a beer they exactly. wanted they wanted oh to personalize it you know yeah. what i mean but they weren't willing to go through the effort necessarily um so so that that's was one. really that's a fascinating insight yeah well, it's because it's not as much fun, right? Let me just pop open the can, pop open the bottle. <laughs> you do have, like, I mean, there is a big group of home yeah, brewers out yeah. there yes, that really enjoy but, it. They're, they, they, right. but they're really, hardcore. really engaged, but right. they're, they're yeah. hardcore. Yeah. yeah. What a fun conversation. Tom Allison, head of investment strategy and in M&A at ZX Ventures. It's the innovation arm for AB InBev. I'm driving in my car. I 
turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. My favorite time to say time for the drive to the close because it's the Friday close. I'm also happy to have back with us Alan Lance. Uh, he's research director over at LanceGlobal.com, president of Allen B. Lance and Associates, joining us once again on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Hey, happy Friday. Nice to have you here. Busy uh, Friday, Alan. Uh, I don't know. What do you find interesting to, you know, in this market right now, in this environment? Yeah, it's been a real, um, like you said, Carol, interesting from the standpoint of, um, you know, everybody's favorite going into uh, uh, the last few years is the S&P 500. And really, that's underperformed when you look at it. Um, most of these indices, the NASDAQ is, and Russell 2000, even the mid-cap, um, are all much higher uh, as far as performance-wise year-to-date. And, you know, it, it's becoming, you know, a matter of being selective and, and buying the right areas. Uh, you still did well with the S&P 500, but you can't outperform. And uh, what I really find interesting is just how the sectors have, have changed where, you know, we were overweight healthcare, took some profits uh, latter part of last year uh, to get to equal weight, and then um, put that money into energy because it underperformed so much. And, and now with this um, Chevron and a Darko deal, uh, it kind of substantiates it energy is undervalued and and uh that 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 sector is is um, you know outperforming so it's giving the uh select uh, smart investor a chance to uh outperform which has been very difficult in the, in the past years just uh keeping up with the indices to be honest so right so, uh, Alan, talk to us a little bit more about that energy play, because you see a big deal like that, and we were talking with our own Tina Davis earlier about this. You start to think, all right, is there more consolidation coming? Is there more divestiture coming? Is there generally more activity? How do you play that as an investor in sort of real time and in the short term? Yeah, it's always hard, Jason, to you know just buy in after a big spike uh, yeah. you know, like this, so, so I'd let it calm down. But I think long term... Uh, you know, energy is still appealing. If you look at Anadarko, I mean, it's up, you know, over 30%, even had a higher offer, supposedly, right. uh, than the one they accepted. And, and yet, year to date, it's actually down, you know, a couple percent. So, so, so you can still make a case that there's value here. This is a good way to participate. Um, but then, you know, uh, just our preservation of capital orientation, um, you know, it, it's no longer obviously the bargains, you know, they were as far as in December and, and January because, uh, you know, they, they've been in catch-up mode. So I still think there's further to go, but, uh, you know, we wouldn't be chasing them here. So I'm looking at just kind of year-to-date what sectors have done really well. I mean, everything's up among the 11 major industry groups in the S&P 500. Information technology, industrials, consumer discretionary are at the top. Consumer staples, utilities, healthcare still higher, but they're at the bottom. And then I just look since the second quarter began, financials at the top. That makes sense because of some of the performance we saw today. Materials, uh, consumer staples, healthcare still lagging. I mean, is this the, you know, I'm just looking at the trade and it feels to me like one that is 
trading on expectations that the economy does okay and maybe even, you know, growth and spending pick up. Consumer discretionary is higher. Uh, Information technology here again in the second quarter so far. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, investors are looking with the glass half full and and thinking that there's something that's going to be resolved here with the China trade and and, uh, tariff situation and and that the economy uh, uh, maybe has slowed down in the U.S., but uh, it it will be back on track as as far as the latter half of the year. So it's funny how, you know, earnings aren't as pressing now. It's more of a matter of uh, uh, the the global aspect and, and a more secular macro view than 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 what is typically seen, you know, especially on uh, on the edge here of uh, a new earnings. Macro season. matters, yeah. right? Exactly. It seems like it does more than ever in, in this environment. And I mean, we're we're buying some financials. I mean, we were buying you know the the money center banks and what have you, like J P Morgan. Last time we talked, under a hundred. Now that it's one hundred and ten, you know, we're, what we're doing are you know buy more of the regional banks, the smaller community banks that haven't moved as much. But again, that's been an area that's underperformed. And I I think that's how you can make money in this market rather than chasing. I mean, if you know if you look at the macro and right. and you think everything's going to you know pan out, then everything will go up like what we saw in the first quarter, and and uh, it won't matter too much. But I, I think you're going to get more of this volatility and, and back and forth and winners and losers that we kind of saw the last quarter of uh, last year. You know, one sector and a couple names that we've been looking at a lot this week, Alan, are the airlines and Delta uh, specifically. What do you make of what's going on in the airline industry and, and maybe with DAL uh, in particular? Yeah, we like Delta a lot. When it went under 50, Jason, uh, we, we, we put it on our recommended list and, and bought it. Again, long-term, well-run. Uh, you know, uh, if anything, they might get, you know, as, as, as far as a uh, uh, little boost uh, uh, with the Boeing situation, but right. more on a secular basis, it was uh, uh, a situation where I, I think they're well-positioned and and uh, the, the stock has, has moved up, where, again, we, we wouldn't chase it as far as in the mid and upper 50s, but if... Uh, if your listeners, uh, you know, get a chance to, to buy at 50 or, or less, I think uh, if they have a long-term perspective, they'll, they'll make good money. And and um, that's been the area in the transports that we've liked uh, now that the rails have moved up. Uh, that was our favorite uh, uh, the last uh, couple of years. But uh, Delta, I think, is well-positioned. And maybe like even a, a JetBlue, if, mm. if it went down, that would be a, a secondary lesser quality, but uh, uh, secondary position that, that can be taken in, in that uh, industry. Alan, you also like Dow DuPont, and you also like their new spinoff, Dow. Uh, you've been adding to those positions or buying into them? Yeah, those are uh, two of the areas that we've been buying. Um, uh, you know, they, they've um, uh, underperformed. Uh, Dow was a one issued at, at 48, so it's moved up a little bit, and it's up a lot today. So we didn't buy any today, obviously. But, uh, again, uh, you know, it, it's been volatile, so you buy it on those weaker time periods. I think uh, um, Dow DuPont will have one more spinoff June 1st that uh, uh, will, will attract some attention. And, and then uh, basically I think Dow uh, is going to have uh, a, a good uh, good dividend and, and uh, a solid uh, uh, as far as environment uh, for earnings growth. And, and uh, I think those type of uh, industrial-type companies will, will do well um, as, as far as over the long term. And, and they've really been uh, underperformers. So just like the financials, yeah, those have been areas that we've been adding to, Carol. 
Alan Lance is director of research at LanceGlobal.com, also the president of Alan B. Lance and Associates. Joining us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Always great to catch up with him because yeah. he's talking names and really doing some great research and analysis. I loved even just, you know, piecing through sort of his research and sort of seeing where their minds are. I agree. And it's fascinating to hear so many of those kind of names that have been around, brands that have been around for many, many years, uh, certainly well known to uh, the investment class. And that's where he's been uh, adding some more positions or or, uh, stakes, if you will. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.